And we're recording. Welcome to the fifth quarter, Conversations Beyond the X's and O's. I'm Jeff Osterman, joined by the basketball savant, Layson Perkins. And tonight's guest is Matt Brown. And for those that don't know the name, in less than an hour, he will become one of your go-to people to follow. Matt, welcome to the show. Fellas, thanks, thanks for having me. Great to be here. I know a lot. We had to cut you and Layson off from talking about New Orleans, but maybe you can take us on a brief journey on your background and kind of fill everybody in on, on how it started and where you are now. Sure. I I, uh, I, I came into sports writing from a, a more non-traditional path. You know, I, I didn't go to Northwestern or Syracuse. I didn't go to journalism school at all. I, I, I grew up in Ohio and have a political degree from Ohio State and realized just as I was getting ready to graduate that actually I, I don't think I want to be an attorney anymore. I don't I don't think I, I want to work in politics. I, I think I want to be a writer, but by then it was too late to change majors. <laughs> and Ohio State didn't even really have an undergraduate J school. So um I used to be an elementary school teacher in Louisiana. Um uh, I did I did teach for America. I worked in political organizing in the Midwest for a little bit. I, I did some work in, in corporate uh, recruiting. And at night, I would cover high school football or I'd write about Big Ten baseball or I'd take every little stringer job that I could. I did that for a few years and applied to probably every newspaper job across the country. Uh, and of course, I, I, did, I didn't even get callbacks because I graduated in 2009, right, right when Lehman Brothers collapses. It's a, a terrible time to be hitting the, the job market anyway. And I was just about ready to go give up writing and go get an MBA. I just gotten married. And then SB Nation gives me a call. And it's like, we, we need a full-time person to not just write about college sports, but also to help kind of manage our sea of, of college sports contributors. And uh, I ended up working there for about seven years and ended up taking a leadership role in their college sports coverage. I wrote a lot there. I wrote a book when I was there. I, I, I grew a couple of blogs. It was a, it was a, it was a mostly a very positive experience, but then uh, last April and as the pandemic began to hit, I think that that uh, expedited some decision-making to really pull back from sports and I was laid off and I realized, well, now I'm in my, I'm in my early thirties and I'm not, going to move to Brooklyn and make $39,000 a year for an entry-level digital media job. And there's even fewer newspaper gigs now than there was when I graduated. So if I want to stay in this business and I don't want to move, I, I, I live in Chicago, I got a, a you know mortgage and little kids and I didn't want to, to pick myself up again. I figured the best my best chance is to go into business for myself. And, and that's what I've been doing uh, since last April full-time as I, I run a newsletter called Extra Points, publishes four days a week. And it's about the kind of sports writing that I'm most interested in. I, I imagine that's of interest to, to both of you. It's about all the off-the-field stories that that shape college athletics, whether that's higher education stories, business stories, name, image, and likeness, um, all the, the things that kind of go into what folks see in March and what folks see on Saturdays is, is what I want to focus on. And I've been really blessed that uh, despite launching this from my basement in the middle of the pandemic, year and a half into it, you know, it's, it, I have a career. This, this is my full-time job and it's grown enough to sustain me. And I hope we can continue to grow in the future. That's great, Matt. Uh, you and I had once talked, uh, Brett McMurphy, who I knew when I was coaching at USF and from being in the industry for 25 years, you know, there's so many things that go on and the stigma. Let's not Let's not let the press find out about this. But Matt, how do you get credibility or to even speak to somebody on the record 
about a potential story. It, it takes a while, right? And I, I, I'm nowhere near the level of, of connected that somebody like, like McMurphy is. You know, when, when I was at SB Nation, we, we struggle with this a lot because there's there's a lot of people writing about sports on the internet. And a, a lot of the beats, particularly on the college side, are, are very competitive. There's newspapers, there's recruiting message boards, radio stations, TV stations, national outlets. And at SB Nation, we were a small company and we didn't we, we weren't a broadcast partner for anybody. So we, we couldn't leverage those relationships. And I, re I, I learned that if I'm just started calling up the biggest name coaches or the biggest name players or athletic departments, they were going to ignore me, not just because they didn't trust me, but because they didn't need me. So our ethos was then we have to make sure that we're focusing on stories that are different. And that was around the time when I, I began to learn how to use open records requests because uh, I found that's that's a great way to make a, a, an athletic department talk to you because they have to. <laughs> the law dictates they have to release these records. And many of our peers in the industry we're not filing these same requests because they didn't have the time or the capacity, the interest. And so, you know, for me, I kind of made some of the nerdy financial stuff or the contract stuff my beat and focused on that. Until then, people realized that I was responsible and wasn't going to take emails out of context. I wanted to talk through them and then they would be willing to talk with me. Um, and then I would reach out to schools that didn't have a 40 person beat core. Right. Like so I, I'm from Columbus. I went to Ohio State. Um, that would be one of the most competitive, most difficult places to try to break in. And even now, I don't write a ton about my alma mater because there's there's everybody and their brother on the Internet writes about Ohio State. But there's people that have interesting stories and interesting things to say about this industry at Akron and at Bowling Green and at Case Western Reserve and John Carroll. And increasingly, they don't have as many people. So I call them. Uh, and then once, you, once you're able to go to somebody and say, listen, you know, I broke this story in the WAC and this story in the Ohio Valley and these six consultants can vouch for me and so can this athletic director. Then maybe Gene Smith picks up the phone the next time I call. And that's that's the, the process I'm, I'm hoping to do here. So once you get your foot in that door the first time and you do your request, then once you have that relationship, then is it really just based on trust that they know you're not going to do a hatchet job. You're going to explain their point of view and, and maybe it comes out to be a positive. Yeah, that's, that's the hope. I mean, a lot of this is relationship driven. That's, that's part of how credentials are, are issued. That's part of how coaches and administrators and anybody really decides who, who to talk to. Right. So if you're, you know, I grew up in a, a little town called Granville, which is where a division three school, Denison university is located where no, no press is ever going to come, you know, there they might take a chance on somebody who's calling just because they, they need to get that information out. Uh, for a, a different kind of institution, it is going to be about trust. And then when, now, and even, you know, and even now I don't, I don't get everybody on the phone that I would like, but I can call somebody up. And a lot of times in the industry, they've heard of my publication or they, they know who I am, or I can point to these couple of links and say like, look, I like to joke on Twitter as much as as much as the next millennial, right? I like to have fun, but I, I'm also capable of writing about things as a serious professional. And here's some of the work that I've done. And and most of the time, people now, if they're talking to anybody, are willing to talk with me. Let's talk realignment. It seems like Texas, Oklahoma got this ball rolling. Was that something you had a feeling, you know, and it's almost a game of chicken where Everyone goes to their conference meetings. They all shake hands and hug. And then as soon as the doors open, everyone's on their cell phone. Did you have a feeling <laughs> before it broke Texas, Oklahoma up to something? 
I'll be honest, the timing of this completely took me by surprise. And I think it took most of my peers uh, and, and folks that work with those schools by surprise. The idea of Texas and Oklahoma, you're testing the proverbial free agent market. That was not really a surprise. I think people that, that really followed uh, the Big 12's kind of flirtation with, with expansion last cycle, which is like 2014, I think, figured, hey, when this TV contract winds down, Texas, they're, they're, they're at least going to take other phone calls. The fact that this happened as quickly as it did and right in the middle of SEC media days without anybody you know, leaking it, that was a really big surprise. Uh, I, I imagine we'd be having this conversation next year, uh, but uh, the, the the handful of people that knew about this were able to move very quickly, and that's that's a little unusual in this industry. Lason and I are both SEC fans, and we get along most weekends, but obviously the SEC premier football, how much goes on behind closed doors? Is it it's almost like, you know, I always tell Lason with the pretty girls in college, you know, if I were to ask you out, would you say yes? You know, is it almost that SEC people are talking behind the doors saying, Texas, if we ever wanted to expand, would you be interested? There are a slew of individuals that are able to act as go-betweens for these kind of conversations. So an athletic director or more importantly, a university president or a regent can say with plausible deniability, we, we didn't reach out to them, right? There are consultancies that specialize in this. There are regents and members of board of directors and politicians that go to the same country clubs that can kind of pass this information along. And there's agents, some agents that might represent the same coaches or athletic directors. I understand what the SEC has to say in the face of potential litigation, but they did not initiate this conversation. And I, I think um, technically speaking, that is correct. Uh, I'm told that is the best kind of correct <laughs> to be technically correct. Do I think that there were that there were, nobody was 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 talking at all, whether whether they were formally dispatched by Greg Sankert? Like that, I think that would be ridiculous. There's there's definitely just like there are ways that you can gauge the interest of a potential coaching candidate without formally you know entering negotiations. You you get one of your guys to kind of call one of their guys and suss that out. That's the same thing with realignment too. Matt, how much of a culture shock was it when you moved from the Midwest down to New Orleans, Louisiana? Now you're experiencing SEC football, the whole culture and everything. How much of an adjustment was it for, for you? I, I got to tell you, my friends, it was a massive adjustment because I had lived in the Midwest almost my entire life at that point, uh, mostly in, in small town Ohio. And also, I was a Mormon. So I didn't drink. I, 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 right. I, I, I said, was, I, I still am, but like to then go to a play out of the country where I didn't know anybody in a really stressful like job. And then to a culture that was not only foreign to me in many ways, but then also centered around drinking when I just what didn't spend a whole lot of time in bars. I, I was lonely those, those first couple of months and, and near, near the end of my time there, uh, I, I found a niche and there are things about New Orleans and there are things about Louisiana that I, I deeply love. Uh, many of them are better than where I live now in Chicago, like the, the, you know, the food for one, but, but many other things too. But as a 22 year old, like I was still dating a girl back in Columbus and I was driving 
every six weeks. So I got to know every single like, like rest stop in Mississippi and, and Tennessee and everything. Like it was, it was tough. It's a, it's a good thing to do when you're 22 to put yourself in a completely alien, different situation, but it wasn't easy for me back then for sure. You mentioned you were a political science major. So was I. So uh, being from Louisiana and knowing the, the history of Louisiana politics, I think the best <laughs> quote was Billy Tozan once said that half of Louisiana was underwater and the other half was under indictment. So <laughs> what, what, I mean, tell me your thoughts on Louisiana politics just real quick before I get to the, gets back on track to, to a sports question. Here. No, oh man, it's, 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 it's awesome. And I keep thinking about this because here in Chicago, we like to joke that the, the, this is the most corrupt place in the world, right? Like, listen, um, in, in many ways that is true, but I think with a few exceptions, our criminals are not as lovable or as flamboyant, I guess. Like there's, there's no real Illinois Edwin Edwards kind of character, right? Like there's, we, 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 we have more of like the, 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 the garden variety, dark, sinister guys, but there there's, there's no Huey Long. There's, there's no, like my very brief like understanding of, of, of that civic world is like it's not exactly an r d kind of situation there's a, there's a variety of these little fiefdoms and and cultural characteristics and retail politics practiced in lafayette looks real different than it does where i live now or in new jersey or in some other places where you might say are a, a little bit more corrupt i would be frustrated with it i think if it was my property tax dollars but looking at it from afar and like just studying them as characters or as, or, you know, people acting out a very complicated state. It's never boring. Like I, whoever's on the state house beat for what the, the newspapers in Louisiana, I know is never bored. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. So let me, go, let's go back to um, relationships with coaches. What advice would you give to coaches who are just starting in the business or who are kind of getting, you know, establishing themselves in terms of building relationship with reporters, because obviously you see the extremes, the, you know, the Popovich, yeah. you know, and, and how he relates to reporters in public. Obviously, there's probably a different persona privately. But what what advice and thoughts would you have? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I think on one level, and I would give the same advice for an administrator, or anybody working in this industry is that you, know, you have to be authentic. If you're if you're super introverted. Um, and you, you don't want to create a completely different persona, I think, for reporters or, or for, for what's in the public, because, you know, I, I think for a lot of my peers, we don't expect you to love us. We don't expect you to be Mr. Charismatic or, or, or bubbly all the time. We, we hope for authenticity. We hope for trust. Um, I think that especially when, when you're early in your career and maybe maybe you need that coverage a little bit. I would hope that you would not be afraid about sharing information and, and talking with people on your beats, but also being you know transparent about what you expect out of that relationship too. We know we're, we're all adults where some, some of this coverage and information is, is a little bit transactional and like, Hey, if you want to set a rule, like, you know, you want to talk to me, go through my SID or only talk to me during these hours. Like, you know, that's, you don't want people texting you. Like, I, I think that's fine. If there's some things you want, you want to talk about what you don't want to talk about. I think that's okay too. Um, I just, I, I wouldn't be afraid of them categorically. Um, if you are a sports writer, you got into this cause you think sports are important and you might not necessarily want to become friends with the coach, but you're also not automatically looking at them adversarially, adversarially either. You, you just want to understand. And that puts, you know, if, if you, if you 
don't look at that potential relationship with fear or as somebody to manipulate. I think everybody can help each other. You know, from my coaching days, some of my good friends were the media, be it television, writing. And I think you nailed it. It is 100% relationship driven. And in the beginning, yeah, the leash might be short. And as soon as you build up that trust, I think, and you and you see what they're writing or what they're producing, I think, yes, you can have great relationships and good or bad, if something's going to come out, I'd rather give it to a friend to sure. share who I know will at least get our point of view out there. You know, is there a coach that in the beginning, Matt, you weren't sure on and now you could say you've developed that relationship with? It's, it's harder for somebody like me because I'm not in the gym week in, week out, or I'm, I'm not at practice. And this, this is the real advantage for being a, a beat writer because it's much easier to develop that kind of relationship if you're there at every press availability, if you're there at practice, if you're there writing about the kind of you know, flotsam and jetsam transactional stuff and get to, get to actually know the person behind the microphone a little bit more rather than a national guy coming in for one week and then maybe not coming back for six months. The, the, the places where I've been able to build I think a deeper relationship and overcome some of that skepticism have generally been more with athletic directors or, or with other people behind the scenes, because those are generally folks that and on my beat in my world right now, I need to talk about more. You know, I can tell you when I first launched extra points, the reaction to almost everybody I've talked to was who's Matt Brown. Um, or sometimes they would confuse me with the Matt Brown that works at the athletic. There's a, a you know, it's the, the, the curse of having the super common name, but after asking for comment again and again, and then sharing what I'm writing and showing that like, I'm, you know, I care about the minutia. I care about some of these things that you honestly want to talk about with other reporters. Now, some of the people that were more wary of me are the ones who will text me unprompted. And I think that's been especially true at the low division one level where I, I've built some of the strongest relationships with conference offices. No, and that's a credit to you and the great job that you do. Matt, I want to get back to it seems like it's the end of round one between the AAC and the Mountain West. And it looked like the Mountain West has said no thank you to those uh, advances, if you will. Now, if you were in both huddles, both camps, what is the AAC thinking? Because there are some geographic schools, but maybe don't have football. Or if you're the Mountain West, what are you thinking if you were inside those camps? Well, I, if, if I was inside, so like there's, I think there's, there's two different questions here, right? There's what I, Matt Brown would recommend. And there's what I think those camps might actually do from what I'm hearing. And sometimes they, they're one in the same. And sometimes that Venn diagram doesn't totally overlap. Um, as I understand it, the, what the Mountain West is, is considering one of two options and potentially a merger of those two options. On one hand, they want to be aggressive and they would like to expand their footprint into Texas. This is something that they've talked about for a couple of years. And it isn't because there is any Division I college football program in Texas that's really excellent right now. You know, I, I, they may call SMU. I'd be pretty surprised if SMU is interested in going back. It's North Texas and Rice and UTEP are generally the schools that I hear about here. The thinking is more, this gives us a chance to play more of our games in the central time zone which is more advantageous for our broadcast partners. 
It gives a little bit more kickoff flexibility and, and playing time flexibility for our schools. And also, literally everything is bigger in Texas. And by that, I mean, there's a lot more potential recruits in Texas and there's a lot more potential students in Texas. So if I'm a place like Utah State or Wyoming where enrollment is declining, I don't have a lot of money. I would love to be able to play in the DFW two times a year for all of my sports and maybe convince a couple of these new Texan transplants to come to go to enroll in Logan and pay that sweet out-of-state tuition um, and, and make a little bit of extra money there. So that is going to be uh, something I, I expect them to, to, to seriously look at. The other potential option for them is another strategy that they had considered and didn't quite work out, which is just tripling down on basketball. And by that and saying, listen, let's call Grand Canyon. Let's call St. Mary's. Let's call Gonzaga. Let's uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take the temperature here for, um, you know, New Mexico State. And let's bring together and build a 16-team men's and women's basketball league that we think can get two to three tournament bids a year and be, you know, on, on some years, the premier Western basketball league. And there is some concern right now that if they don't, that might be the whack. In, in five or six years as Grand Canyon's uh, uh, growing and as Stephen F. Austin is growing and some of these other schools, not just enrollment, but budget and prestige are, are growing over these next couple of years. Um, I don't know if Gonzaga would be more or less receptive to that pitch now, you know, now that the BYU is not in that league and the, the finances and the RP and the, the net rating for the WCC are going to look a little bit different, but that's what I would expect the Mountain West to, to do. Make those phone calls first and see who tells you no. Um, for the American, it's, it's a, it's a challenge here. I've, I mentioned this in my book and I've written about it several times in, uh, and in, in extra points. One of the big challenges for a college conference right now is that if you do not have a very clearly defined identity, and by that, I mean, institutional identity or geographic identity, you are going to be at risk for instability. And when I look at the teams I've it's, ever since the American launched, right, it was a collection of. R1 research institutions and ECU and urban schools and Tulsa and mostly Southern schools, but also Temple and Cincinnati for some reason, right? Like the, the thing that they all really had in common was we care about sports and we want to be in a better conference someday. And, and lo and behold, we had instability, just like we did with the Metro Conference, just like we did with the old WAC, just like we did with the Southern Conference and the old Missouri Valley. And now I think they have to, now that they, they swung and missed on the West, I think they have to sit down here and really think about what does an American Athletic Conference institution look like, or we want it to look like in 2023? Is it mostly urban Southern schools? Great. UAB would, lo would love to join your league. Call Charlotte. Uh, I, they'll, they'll, they'll join too. And then we can kind of look around that identity. Is it, we want to build the best football entity possible. Well, in that case, you should call Appalachian state, even though their budget and their room to grow financially is much smaller than a lot of these other peers. Um, is it to, to maximize your tier one revenue, television rights revenue? Well, maybe you should go outside this footprint at all. I don't get the impression that they know exactly what they want to be yet. But my concern for them would be is if they expand without trying to build that identity, they're going to leave themselves vulnerable to somebody like Navy or Wichita State or Temple deciding to go somewhere where they do have a greater institutional identity, which is you know, what, what would happen with UConn and, and what I, th I think would happen elsewhere. So if you don't make that, proactively make that choice, other schools may decide to make that choice for you, and you might not necessarily like that outcome. Does that make sense? No, it does. And, it, and it's a great segue. And, you know, for those 
maybe that don't agree. It is definitely football driven money, television, men's basketball a bit. Maybe that's why Memphis is is in the conversation. But it, it leads me to a couple things. You know, one is when you have an anchor, like UConn football is an anchor. Wichita State not having football, that potentially is an anchor. You know, I joked with Layson. I said, do you think UConn and UMass football combined, where would they finish in the SEC if you combine both? They're, they're just not competitive. But would you ever see a Wichita State going back if they would have them to the Missouri Valley? Because right now, square peg, round hole. Or what does UConn do with their football? Is there yeah. any thoughts? And then the other thing is all these Division twos, they all want to be Gonzaga. You know, we're all going to go and we're going to build it. We'll be the next one. So maybe two parts. You know, the first one about the anchors and part two, is there a Division two that you think you would buy that stock? Yeah, so so these these are these are two good questions, and I, I I'll tell you guys like I'm I'm actually literally flying out to Hartford on Friday and driving to Amherst to go to the UConn UMass game. It's going to be the first football game that I've covered since since uh, since COVID. And, and how uh, much are you getting paid to do that? Well, so here, by I mean, both this, schools. No, it's, <laughs> I I the, the I will be able to have media access and, and I'm talking to to Ryan the UMass's athletic director and you know they 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 were generous I mean no no one, no yeah no one's paying me like I'm I'm probably gonna lose money on it uh, some people have subscribed just because they know I'm doing this it's a kind of a, a calculated bet but part part of the reason I'm taking that trip is to try to get a better answer for that exact question like I want to look somebody in the eye that tailgates UMass football. And I want to say, God bless you. But why? And I want to talk to you know their athletic director and say, like, listen, I'm not. I didn't fly all the way out here to insult you, but I want you to tell me about what does success look like because you're never going to make the Rose Bowl, and that can be fine. You can still have a, a valuable athletic department and a functioning football program without that. But like, we haven't really seen a proof of concept of what a good UMass football looks like at the FBS level. So. Sell me on it. Walk, walk me through it. It's the same thing here for UConn. I, I can kind of squint my eyes and, and kind of understand what UConn's trying to do. I think for UMass, it's it's more difficult, but um, I, I think it would be more fair for me to see it in person before I I lob too many other grenades because there's I I don't know New England very well, so there there may be some things here that I'm missing. Um, not having a football team can be a certainly be a negative for high level conference homes. But that hasn't stopped Georgetown. It hasn't stopped Villanova. It hasn't stopped Gonzaga. It hasn't stopped other programs. You know, BYU didn't have a home for a while for their football program, and they were still a successful and valuable part of, of the West Coast Conference. So, I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about Wichita enough specifically to th- to see whether they entertain going back to the Missouri Valley. I know there was some bad blood there, and and that school's different from some of the other smaller schools in that league. But I don't think they're necessarily harmed by not having football, it just speaks to the importance of really being comfortable with what your athletic department is and not trying to, to be something that's not what I loved about UConn's decision to go back to the big East. It's just, it's just, they're being very honest with themselves saying, look, you know, and I know, and God knows, and all everybody knows we're a basketball school. 
That's our, our fans care about men's basketball, women's basketball, men's basketball, and recruiting for those two before they'll ever care about football. We don't want to get rid of football. Football has its place in our university strategic plan, but we want to put ourselves in a position to, to, to give what our fans care about the most. That's a good lesson. I, I, I think more schools would benefit from realizing that you're not Boston College, you're not Notre Dame, and that's okay. There's room to be somebody else too. Matt, a couple of quick college college football questions before we move into our next topic. Number one, is Cincy for real? I mean, part of Cincinnati is for real. Like their their defense, I think, on a per play basis, is as good as anybody else's in the country. There's NFL talent in that secondary. They uh, keep everybody in front of them very well. They avoid chunk plays. I think they would give just about any offense in the in the country a real struggle. Now, is their offense like elite? Through all four quarters? No, we haven't seen that yet. I don't think we will. Desmond Ritter, I think, could be a really good quarterback like half the time. But here's the thing. That's not like damning with fate praise, I don't think. That just means that they're flawed, which means that they are just like everybody other than Alabama and Georgia. Um, they're a really good football team and not really good for a G5 in that kind of diminutive pat on the head sort of way, but like capital G good. And we saw that going into Notre Dame and I think really physically controlling that team. Uh, we'll see what that win looks like and what the rest of their conference looks like later on. But I can't think of a ton of teams that have shown through four games that they're better than Cincinnati right now. What are your thoughts on the, of the demise of the two Tigers? One being Clemson and the second one being my beloved purple and gold LSU. Uh, we can talk about Clemson here first. And, and to, to some extent, I think this is a little bit inevitable because Outside of Alabama, which is the closest, this is not, you know, it's the closest thing to an NFL franchise college sports has, has ever seen. Um, even if you recruit at an absolutely elite level and you have staff continuity at an elite level, which what Clemson has, that's very uncommon within college athletics. Uh, eventually, you're going to replace a lot of dudes. And we, we're seeing this with Ohio State and we're seeing this a little bit with LSU. We're seeing this with a couple other big name programs. I actually think that COVID year put them at a little bit of a competitive disadvantage because so many of their opponents, especially these mid-level teams in conference play are extremely experienced because they didn't send anybody to the NFL and they basically got to redshirt their entire team. Um, and as we see in college basketball a lot, if you're able to return 18 of your starters or 17 of your starters that were above average, you're a very strong team. And Clemson you know, replaces almost their entire offense. And they're, they're, they're playing, playing a lot of young players, and they just don't have that same experience and continuity as their, their peers. Uh, we're seeing this with Ohio State's defense right now, and we're seeing this with, with, with Texas A&M's offense. So I don't, I don't look at this and think, we got to throw everything out the window. This is a program in crisis. It's, it's going to happen. They've been a little bit unlucky. But I think Clemson's going to have to change some things about their scheme and also change some things about the program that they've been reluctant to do, including really embracing the transfer portal. Uh, to, to keep pace because otherwise you are at the mercy of having a generational at quarterback in order to make everything work. And Clemson's going to have that more often than not, but you're not going to have it every year. And then when you don't, your offense is going to look like this for LSU. Uh, I feel like if you look at college football history, even though you could, I think you can credibly say LSU has more built-in advantages than almost anybody else in the sport. There's a reason they haven't been, like Ohio State, where they've gone 40 years without a bad year, right? You have a really complicated and sometimes hostile and unpredictable booster culture and a political culture. 
and school leadership. You have an extremely difficult schedule year in and year out. You have a ton of roster attrition because LSU is going to send a fifth of their roster to the NFL every single year. Um, and you also had, in this case, had a bunch of other off the field stuff. Ed Orgeron probably should have been fired for Title IX violations before this season even started. Multiple people at LSU's athletic department probably should be fired, if not criminally prosecuted, for some of the, the, the scandals here over the last year and a half. That hasn't happened. And then you had a coach that a lot of people in the industry and at his own school never really completely trusted. And then a ton of attrition and some bad injury luck. It, it, it's all going to add up. And I, at LSU, and I think USC is also another example of a school like this, where it's much more likely that you're going to be mediocre-ish or you know, kind of a B to B minus kind of program and then have an insanely good national championship year once and then go back to being whatever than it is to be consistently elite year in, year out. And, and that's kind of where I see LSU. And I imagine that's a school that's going to be very tempted to do something rash this off season. You know, Scott Woodward's a lot of things. Subtle is not a word I would use to describe him or uh, his administrative style. And, and I would imagine whatever it is LSU decides that they're going to do, they're not going to do it subtly. That's a very good point. I can tell you as a Tiger fan, it is just, it's going to be an interesting ride over the next couple of weeks. Let's um, let's switch, let's switch topics. Let's talk about the, the, the newest thing, the, 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 the new era of, of college athletics. And that's with uh, NIL. Have, Matt, have you looked in your crystal ball and seen any unintended consequences that are going to suddenly start popping up now that we've kind of let the, we've kind of let this out of the bag, so to speak. You know, to be honest with you, I, I don't know if we've seen a lot of those yet. I, I, there, I know there was a lot of concern like this is going to, the rich are just going to get richer. This is going to be completely destabilized recruiting. And, and my thinking is generally that college coaches in my experience uh, are much more likely to tell reporters and kind of freak out about not having control over some new thing and be more scared about it. And then in actuality, it turns out to not be that huge of a problem. Uh, I think about cost of attendance. That's one of those things and a lot of coaches and even some of their administrators are like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the, the new bag man. And if we aren't giving $6,000 to every recruit for cost of attendance, no one's ever going to sign here again. Well, nobody ever makes a decision based on that. And some schools give more and some schools give less. But if you can't sell your program's value long-term as more than somebody getting two grand more for cost of attendance, you haven't done a good enough job recruiting. Like that, that little thing should, shouldn't be the deal breaker. I'll tell you what I have seen in this marketplace though. And this is coming from, I've actually done a couple of these deals myself. I talk to athletes fairly regularly. Um, I think a lot of division one schools were really caught off guard with how to prepare, not just their athletes, but their programs. And what I'm finding then is like, okay, well, listen, we, we, we cut a check to influencer or to open doors and they're doing the education, the compliance and the athletes aren't really engaging with those modules. I mean, I'll talk to somebody three months later who doesn't really know the first thing about how name image like this practically works where they might say to me like, Hey Matt, uh, you mean I have to unlock my Instagram account if I'm going to go sell an ad? Well, yeah, no one's going to give you money to advertise on an account that's not open to the public or how do I find a deal or how do, what do I do if I, if someone approaches me with a deal, the kids don't know that yet. Um, and that that just speaks to how one about the sheer amount of regulatory uncertainty that's happened because no one's even now really knows what the rules are, uh, and then they don't know how to explain all those complicated rules to the, to their athletes. And that I think is a much bigger story over the next six months than um, 
who's getting a deal with a car. Matt, I want to go into kind of down that road. And I think it was TCU football put it out there that, you know, Alabama, the rich are going to get richer um, with a lot of these things. You now throw in, you have a great freshman year at TCU on the quarter field. You can put your name in the portal and you can end up anywhere you want. And I think back in the days where the football coach would talk to the boosters and obviously there were athletes that got incentives, quote unquote, to play. Now, if I'm, I mean, Alabama is a bad example, but use LSU. If LSU gathers all their boosters that have automobile franchises and say, hey, we're in competition for a quarterback against Ole Miss. What can we all do in terms of putting together, quote, opportunities? I've spoken to some of my friends. I said, now, back in the day, you used to show kids the cafeteria, the dorms, the gym. But now is the biggest thing sitting with someone and talking about NIL. And he said, we can't promise anything, but we will clearly point out all of the opportunities that may be available. So it's almost legally, if you're choosing between a few great places, if it's you know, LSU, Alabama, Georgia, do you think eventually, because it's kind of the Wild West and it's free game, do you think it will get out of control? And is there any way of pulling it back? I guess it depends on what you think about is out of control. You know, if I am a five-star quarterback recruit um, and both LSU and Ole Miss are interested in my services to the point where there are the business community is willing to kind of to bid, I would look at that and think ah, that's America, baby. Like that, that, and, and that would be true for any any other professional, or, or for that matter, a student. Because if I am a 4.0 chemistry student and I have offers at both those schools, those schools are going to compete with money. They're 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 if if not just full ride scholarships with other stipends or other things to try to bring me to campus. And so I don't look at that automatically and thinking like that's out of control. Where where I would be concerned. And, and, and I wrote about this. I was actually kind of troubled with the way that, that Coach Patterson at TCU explained this is one of the things that I think is really exciting about name, image, and likeness is that it provides an athlete an opportunity here to not just get a, a lump sum for cash, but to be given the skills to think about themselves entrepreneurially and come away with, with an understanding of, of marketing and starting your own business and how to price CPM. And if this is something that's like important for you, like you come away with like a legitimate, like hands-on business experience. And when you are an athlete, especially at a place like an LSU or a TCU, and, and you guys know this as well as anybody, you can't really major in anything that you want. You're, there's going to be plenty of educational op- or opportunities that other students get that you won't be able to have. You are not studying abroad. You're not doing the same level of internships. You are, you know, if you can't take that class that's got a 9 a.m. lab because that's weights and, and meetings and everything, right? So you already your your window is being is winnowed a little bit. And name image likeness, I see as a, as potentially as a way of expanding that classroom and expanding those opportunities and kind of uh, you know, balancing things out a little bit for athletes. When you are then just saying, I don't care about that, just give them the checks so they stay on my football team. I think that's making a mockery of this idea that you are supposed to be an educator. And like as somebody like a TCU, like you, and we all know like Patterson's there to win football games. Right. And 
I, at that point, if he's going to just say like, we need this or I'm going to lose 25% of my roster, which I don't think is true, but I know that he said that. I think the more honest thing to do, honestly, would be for TCU to just to straight up pay him. If, if, if you're, it's your, if you don't want to go through the side process here of trying to, of, of building their entrepreneurial skills and connecting them to actual businesses, and you're just going to treat this as the, the same pass through jobs that we used to do back in the fifties before we were allowed to give athletic scholarships. I don't think that that's any more moral, just like it wasn't moral when Ohio state did it in 1952. If that's how, for me, I think if that's our honest to God thinking here, then just cut them a check. And we'll call them professionals. And that doesn't mean that that's wrong. That I think that would be more honest. If you want to cling to this idea that they're students, I'm cool with that too. But then we, I, I would need these, I think these opportunities should be more about not just pass through things, right? Like when, when I do these deals, I, I want to make a profit from them. <laughs> I also wanted to make it worth it for the athlete. Um, I know I'm, I'm not dropping a, a bag to go help Seton Hall swimming or anything, right? Like, and that's, I think if coaches are look at that too cynically, it it it, it is um, it, it takes away from the dignity of the athlete a little bit. I think like you know, that I don't think is a real positive. You know, I think what would be interesting because I agree a lot of schools are caught off guard. Is programs most schools hand their kids a binder, the do's and don'ts, don't cut class. You yeah. know, here's our hours. Is we always had given out a social media policy about who you're allowed to follow, recommend this, don't do that. I think schools were caught off guard that their policies all of a sudden became outdated. But uh, maybe tell me so far, what do you think the best deal that you've heard someone's gotten to promote? And then do you see this trickling down to high schools that, hey, you put my name on the cover of your school brochure. I get attendance is up at our high school and I should be compensated. So, I mean, there, I think there's been a lot of pretty creative uh, name image like this deals. Um, I, I think the funniest one that I saw was like the day or two after July one, when this dropped and one, one just regular student paid a football player at Rice to tweet, like talking him up so he could go get a date. Like just like, like promoting one of his friends, like you should go ask this guy out or whatever. Like, listen, that that's a great use of a hundred bucks. Cause like, you know, I, I look at this and I think there's like the comedy factor of just like 20 year olds being stupid. It enhances the sport. I think that's great. But one of the things that, that I'm, I look at it and get really excited about is what happened at BYU. They had two really big, and they made you like this deals there. One of them provided up to, up to the cash value of free tuition for every walk on, on their football program. And another one provided that same deal for every scholarship or for every roster rostered athlete for their women's sports to, so you know that and BYU has the cheapest tuition, I think in, in division one, it's only like five grand for most of these athletes. So it's not an exorbitant amount of money and they still have to like promote the social brand or whatever, but for a sport that isn't a headcount sport, if you're say volleyball, which BYU is a really good women's volleyball program. And you can only offer, what is it, seven scholarships or something. And, and maybe only two of them are full scholarships and they're spread around there. Now, because of this, like, listen, if you're willing to do a couple of, of, of promotional events for some protein bar company, um, you basically get a full scholarship. And you can walk away and compete in your sport at a very high level and walk away with zero debt. That's awesome. That's life-changing. And, and we'll probably help them with recruiting. And that's a program that could use it because, and I say this with love, as somebody who married a, a BYU graduate and, and, and is close to that 
program, that's not an easy place to go to school. And it's especially not an easy place to go to school if you're not LDS. Uh, it's it's not a place you're going to stack five stars, right? So then to be able to credibly say, you know, our community is willing to, to not just do this for our star quarterback, but for our softball players. I think that's awesome. And, and that's something I hope that happens with more programs when as they begin to see there are real benefits to investing in the entire team, right? There's a lot of smart barbecue restaurants out there that are realizing I should sponsor the offensive line because nobody knows about uh, eating exorbitant amounts of meat like a left tackle. And I want, I want those guys on my corner, right? And there's a lot more of those opportunities available for women athletes. They just need to, to go out there and, uh, and try to get them. Question now. Let's talk sports gambling, and it seems like where once it was forbidden, taboo, now it's becoming more accepted, different states. Is it good for the game? Do you think bad? Will it lead to more scandals, or will it eliminate some of them? This is a great question. And, you know, I've I've thought about this a lot. So, like, for my publication, I don't accept uh, advertisements from gambling entities. Um, and part of that is, is for regulatory reasons, because it, I'm, I'm told in, in Illinois uh, that, you know, the paperwork would have, the juice wouldn't have been worth the squeeze, you know, to, to be registered with that. But I also felt like if I spent 2,000 words writing about like integrity of the college athlete experience and NCAA reform brought to you by DraftKings, like that kind of under, undermines the whole like ideological bent of my publication. I'm not a moral Puritan about this. Like I know that people want to gamble. I've been to a sports book before. It's not something that I'm going to regularly do, but my, I, my concerns are twofold. One, because by far the biggest entity right now spending ad money are, are people involved in gambling and, and that's hurting. I mean, a lot of digital media companies that are, that are starving for ad dollars are having their hands out to daily fantasy sports and sports books and having them underwrite increasingly larger parts of their editorial operations. And I think that that sucks for consumers that aren't into gambling. And, and, and I think that that can warp the quality and the content of what you're producing in a way you might not like. I don't know enough to say whether legalized gambling is going to invite more scandal. But I will say, the more that I've learned about uh, about point shaving and the more that I've read about the, some of the scandals in like the 50s with college basketball and now with how much more ubiquitous this has become, I don't really know how you would prevent it again. And that's not me saying that it's happening right now or that it's going to happen. But if somebody wanted to shave points for Sunbelt basketball, how would anyone stop it? And, like like it, it happened in New York and Boston for years and kind of was almost serendipitous before the authorities were able to catch it. And that bothers me. I'm not bothered so much by 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 people, you know, trying to figure out what the what the line is on a game. But I would want to feel confident in the integrity of the game itself. And I would view point shaving as as a, as a substantial threat to that. Matt, talk to us a little bit about your book. Um, I just uh, I wasn't familiar with it until you know researching, you know, getting ready for the podcast here. And I'm I'm kind of a history buff. I'm, a, I'm you know really into alternate history as well. I remember the first book I ever read was the Harry Turtle Dove book about the. Uh, about the South getting the AK-47s and it, 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 you know, some really crazy stuff there, but, sure. uh, but yeah, talk about your book and, and college football and, and, and just kind of, how did you, how did that come about? 
Yeah. So I, I wrote it. My book's called What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Great Questions. And um, I, this kind of the, the genesis for this came originally when I was writing a lot about the Big 12's first kind of foray into conference realignment. And everybody and their brothers writing conference realignment stories. And I started digging into the the history of what inspired different schools to make different league affiliation decisions and, and what schools were tied to other leagues and almost joined as a way to give different context to my writing for SB Nation. And then I realized, like, one, this is really interesting. And there's a bunch of stuff in the, the newspaper archives that, that maybe people have forgotten about. And then you got to think like, well, man, like, what if the Big 12 had taken New Mexico? What if the airplane conference had happened? Like, you know, that's that, that's a cool idea. And then, you know, that kind of, you know, spun into me digging into some other things. You know, with my focus being so much about administrative stuff, there's so many, like, uh, not just conference realignment decisions, but NCAA formation decisions and coaching decisions that have shaped what this sport looks like for decades, right? Whether that's Bear Bryant getting chased out of Maryland because the stupid governor is getting involved with, like, his player discipline, whether that's, Michigan getting kicked out of the Big Ten, whether that's for people being jealous or because Michigan was cheating, you know, it depends whether you're in Columbus or not. Um, but th but th then they come back, and that led to Notre Dame becoming what it is today, right? You know, Michigan leaving the Big Ten for a few years and Fielding Yost being a mega racist, and it's not difficult to imagine a world where some of those things change. So the, you know, this was, this gave me an opportunity to do a lot of reading and talk to some experts that I hadn't really done before, and you know, stretch my you know, my, my kind of literary muscles into a new kind of project. Uh, I had a ton of fun doing it. I think writing another book right now would probably kill me which be, given everything else I'm doing with my kids at home right now. But I, I think it is something I'd like to do again later because I, I have other book ideas. It's just a matter of, of, of finding enough capacity to really dig into it. Yeah, I guess, I guess my favorite what if, Jeff, is what if Saban stays in Baton Rouge and doesn't go to Miami and, you know, yeah. what, what could have been? <laughs> There, there were like six different variations of that that I, I almost did. You know, what if, what if Rich Rodriguez takes the Alabama job because he's he's the he's the first candidate? What if Drew Brees ends up in Miami and kind of changes that kind of whole trajectory? I'm right, like that. That's the thing. Like that saving decision changes the trajectory of Alabama, LSU, Texas, the Miami Dolphins, West Virginia football, like nine other potential programs. Um, so there's like 14 of those in, in, in the book. Like my my favorite was. It was the, the Metro Conference, which nearly became like the first modern made-for-TV 16-team Super League. And would have, it would have replaced the Big East. Um, it came really close to happening. I got all the briefing books from like the Raycom people and like some of the pitches they were sending to the, the university presidents. Like it would have been fun. And if you're a Tulane fan or an ECU fan or a Southern Miss fan, you got to think that was our chance. Like we would have been a power conference team. And ECU was cooking. In, in the yeah. early 90s, I think, was, you know, I think Pat Dye was there for a minute. Right. Like and they were a top 20 team. They had gotten some of that. The, the, the first batch of cable TV. I mean, who knows what that program would be now? Oh, no doubt. No. Yeah. I mean, you could I, I think we could sit here and, and do multiple episodes on just diff on different what if scenarios. Jeff, I think we may have we may have a new uh, a new idea for the uh, podcast or some some more topics here. We sure can. We can just keep pivoting on what if. There you go. There you go. So, Matt, what advice would you give to that up-and-coming young man or young lady that wants to go into sports, sports journalism in, in this day and age? So, first thing, and this is kind of depressing, but I would say, what's your backup plan? Um, it's a tough industry, right? And, and like, I was super lucky to have a job that paid okay and had health insurance for a couple of years, but even that didn't last. And going into business for myself, like, 
I make more money than most beat writers do right now. And I don't make that much money. Like <clears throat> you have to realize that this job might mean you work in the panhandle of Oklahoma for $29,000 a year and you're on food stamps while covering Juco football. And that's something you have to think about whether you're okay with or being four to four to one apartment in New York city. If you're really committed to doing this in the face of challenging financial forces, the best advice I can give to anybody is be different. Um, and whether that means that you're going to be different because you can code or because you have audiovisual skills, or, you know, I think what really helped me was majoring in something else. So I had some subject matter expertise and, and other, you know, experiences to draw from to help make me a better writer. But there's, there's too many people that, just, that are, are going to write gamers and do the same paint by number recruiting story and, and be on your beat. The only way that you're going to be really successful is if you find yourself, what is it that I can do and I can deliver that's unique? And as you do that, I think you're always going to have work, whether you're in business for yourself or from somebody else. If, if you can if you can tell a story or find a perspective in a way that, that other people aren't doing, and there's definitely room for that right now, there'll always be a place for you. So, Jeff, I think it's time for some uh, some, some quick questions, so some fun questions. So I'm going to start with this one, Matt. Uh Political show, West Wing or House of Cards? <laughs> you know, it's funny, right? Like, I, I feel like I got um, radicalized a little bit by West Wing as, like, a, a dorky teenager. And so that's why, growing up in, like, Bumblefart, Ohio, I watched the show and I'm like, I must go to Washington, D.C. Like, I want to do this. So I, I spent my freshman year at American. And, like, that was my dream school coming out there. And then after a year, I realized, wait a minute, in real life, the West Wing sucks. Everybody here is a jerk. Uh, this school, I'm paying a gajillion dollars for school nobody's heard of back home. What am I doing? Uh, and, and so now I, if people ask me, like, I mean, like the, the most accurate political show to, based on my experience in that industry, it's Veep. It's it's not House of Cards and it's definitely not the West Wing. Um, the West Wing is dangerous in the hands of, of an impressionable 16 year old, I think. I got into Veep and I laughed so much. It was just so wrong, but laugh out loud, <laughs> funny. That it, it was amazing. Um, Matt, give me a crystal ball, something a year from now that we'll look back, Layson and I said, Matt nailed it. Something in the sports world that's going to hit us. Oh, man, man I, I, I always joke with folks. If I had a really good crystal ball, extra points would cost a lot more than eight bucks a month. Um <laughs> I think a, a relatively safe prediction is that uh, by next year, UAB will be in the American Athletic Conference. Um, I think Charlotte will be joining them, but I feel the most confident about UAB. Okay, here's some other quick ones. What's your favorite app on your phone? Maybe obscure, it doesn't have to be Twitter, hmm. but what's uh, your favorite app? My, the, the one that I'm using a lot right now is is Duolingo. Uh, my family, most of my family still lives in Brazil. My, my sister is, is over there. Most of my cousins are there. That's where my family's from. Um, and, you know, I was born in the United States. And because I was the only like Brazilian in Ohio <laughs> when I was there, I didn't really learn Portuguese. And so I've been trying to learn over the last year. I'm, I'm planning on going, on going back next year. I still have my citizenship. And so I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on there when I'm peeling myself away from Twitter or, or from Gmail or my other like work apps uh, to, to, to brush up on, on Portuguese. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that by next off season, uh, I could, I could spend some more time there if things kind of settle down a little bit. Okay, Matt, I've got to ask since you're from Brazil. Okay. How do you pronounce it? Is it 
Asahi? Asahi? Uh, which Asai. is the correct? For like the berry? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Asai. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. How yeah. about this, Matt? Bottom of the ninth. You're coming in from the bullpen. What's your walkout song? Oh, that that that's a tough one. Let me let me hear what you what you guys are first. I have to think about that here for a second. I went um, with Twisted Sister. We're not going to take it. The crowd singing along, and I slammed the door. <laughs> I went with Born on the Bayou. Although you know, there's sure. that scene in um, the Water Boy where uh, you know Adam Sandler's uh, character is driving the um, well, the uh, the lawnmower to it so <laughs> there could be some confusion there but i you know i had to go with you know had to go with something from home yeah i mean if i'm gonna if i'm gonna pull something from home right i, I you know you, you bust out sweet home chicago um and but i was such a crappy baseball player like if, if, if i'm actually being pulled up under the bullpen thinking back to my like high school baseball career it's gonna have to be something pretty ironic so i'm about to serve up a meatball um <laughs> that was that was not my sport <laughs> all right my last one especially as a dad what's your favorite ride at the carnival oh at the carnival you know my my kids i don't actually know we've been to one yet my my youngest is three and my oldest just turned seven and my wife is this very petite woman which means my children are very petite so my seven-year-old looks like she is she's still wearing her five-year-old stuff so she's not even gonna like get on most rides I think my, my favorite carnival things are the things that, that are not going to charge me six bucks to play a rigged game or are going to end up with a goldfish that I have to take care of. Um, th- but you, you know, it's, it's, I don't think we've, I don't think we've had one in the, the nearby in, in Chicago. It was, it's funny. That was a thing I, I went to a lot in Louisiana. I like guess where I had Gator for the first time and rode roller coasters there. And that was, that was a staple of my growing up in Ohio, but it's not quite the same thing when you're in a big city, they don't come as often. Matt, are you a are you a book reader? And and if so, I mean, are you reading what other sports writers are writing? Are you reading books on current current events and politics? What what, what are you doing when you're not writing and, and really focused on your job? So the you know the one thing that I started doing a couple of years ago that and I recommend this for anybody that works in media is to find a hobby that peels you away from screens completely, and ideally something with your hands. You know, one of the things that used to kind of bum me out a little bit as a writer uh, was like I can write a really good story and do all this reporting but in three days no one's going to remember it because the internet attention span you know is going like that so i got into woodworking and uh i i fired up youtube and i bought myself a table saw and i you know i make some ugly jewelry boxes and some bad furniture throughout my house and you know i think when we're all done i finish up the newsletter here tonight i, I might go out and just you know what i'll do i just crank up the music and i might just sand for 20 minutes and like and, and you know, finish up a project that i'm working on which i has been has been very cathartic and i'm still part of the 10 finger club so even though i'm not a great woodworker yet i've, I've passed the most important test um i i do i read a ton but i try i mean i, I a lot of the football books that i'm re- that i read or sports books that i read are, are generally history or uh, about, about uh, you know, older books i, I just finished michael orion's uh, king football which is you know th- this look at uh, college football and the press from like the 1930s and 40s and how they looked at labor and how they looked at NC- like the concept of amateurism and and how they evaluated integration. It's it's a little bit you know on the more academic side, but it's it's I mean it's a book that I love. Um, I also try to read things that aren't as sports, which is I'm, I'm not as good at. I mean they, this this isn't exactly high literature or anything, but. My wife is a gigantic Lord of the Rings fan, and she's maybe watched that stupid movie like six different times, the extended cut, the whole thing. And I felt like 
I should read the books once so I can better engage with this this nerd world that's so important to her that I don't I don't get just like she has learned a little bit about college football knowing that this is important. So I'm almost done with the first book, and it's I'm not really a big fantasy guy, and I, I you know I have to consult my wife for the cliff notes, but you know, that that's been a a bonding thing for you know right just like if she's watching a game with me and. She didn't. She couldn't tell the read option from a punt before we were dating, and, and now she understands this world a little bit more. And that's kind of what you do in a relationship, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so talk about football books. Give us your opinion on the um, the book that came out, the the perfect pass. You know, talk about oh, the history of the air raid. Book. What did oh, you think about that? That's a great book. That's that's a great book. What I, what I love about the perfect pass. There's a, there's a bunch of things I do, right? I mean, one we have so many very eccentric characters that are so important to the, de the, the development of, of the air raid offense, whether that's mummy, whether that's leech, whether that's mouse, L I think it was, no, I forget his last name up at Portland state. And, you know, those are the kind of eccentrics that make for, for good storytelling. But what I think the author did a really great job there was taking a relatively dry X's and O's concept, dragging it all the way back to Sammy Baugh, right? 1930s TCU, dragging it through the present and making it almost literary. Like I think somebody that can't diagram a play in a chalkboard at all, but wants to understand this, the, the force here um, that, that shaped the game so much in a way that like, I mean, I, I think I finished that book in three days. Like it, it, it is, it is great. It's the most readable book that I've ever read that talks about skiing. Like blood, sweat and chalk is a great book and, and smart football is a great book. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call those fun reads. I would call those important reads and, and useful reads, but the perfect pass is a fun read. Like that, that's, I, I would, my understanding is that that gentleman has mostly written what history books, right. Or other like literary nonfiction. I would be interested in reading whatever he has after that. No, no doubt. In fact, I think I want to go back and I think he did a, a I want to say he did a book on Geronimo or one of the, the, the native American leaders. And I, yeah, I want to go back and read that. Have you had a chance to see the movie uh, 12 orphans yet about the, 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 the football team from Texas in the, in the thirties? No, I, I, I don't think I'm familiar with that at all. What, tell me about it. What's 12 so it's, orphans it's based on a book by Jim Dent about this orphanage in Texas that competed against the, um, you know, some of the bigger teams and was basically uh, became a national story because again, it's an orphanage. They they only had a twelve players on the team, and so um, and were successful. In fact, the coach is considered really the forefather of the spread offense because he was able. You know, he created these 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 line spreads and just changed the whole game to give them an advantage against bigger and stronger teams. And of course, you know, just the storyline of these kids going on to you know have successful careers either in coaching or in business. It was very inspirational. Plus, you know, it's it's great to see you know uh, Martin, you know Martin Sheen and Robert Duvall in the same movie together. It was <laughs> I, I just thought it was I thought it was a great story. Jeff, yeah. have you had a chance to watch it yet? I haven't yet, but those are two of my top five, maybe. And throwing in the sports and the storyline, it's on my ever growing. My wife has a honey do list. My yeah. honey do list is a little different. Yeah, because I'm always sending over books and videos for you to look at and everything. So, <laughs> I, I will say this: while we're talking about books, like the the one um, that I recommend to everybody about about football, it's not really about football, but it's like a very extra points kind of book. Is uh, Keith Dunavich's "The Fifty Year Seduction"? Have, have either of you read this book? 
No, no. This is I I this is one of the most useful things for me, I think, in understanding this world. It's all about it's about the history of college sports and television. And it it, it interviews a ton of people that were you know involved in the choices to help make the elevate the Fiesta Bowl into the, the kind of game that it is now. It explains you know how we went from the NCAA controlling all television broadcasts to to uh, after the Supreme Court decision kind of deregulated everything and how and why so many administrative decisions have been centered around placating TV and, and how that shaped decision making really since the 60s. Uh, and it's in a way that it's not academic. It's not dry. I mean, none of it's written about um, a couple of books about Bear Bryant and a couple of other like Southern things. He's not real. He's not like a sports business guy, but. I knocked the thing out in two days, and I think it's it's the the best book that explains how why the sport is the way that it is right now. Um, just a plus. Okay, I want to give you a chance to 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 talk about your website, your podcast, and, and everything Matt Brown, so that we, you know we encourage all of our listeners to 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 start following you and, and checking you out. Sure. So I I, uh, I write extra points. It publishes four days a week. Uh, two of those are free for anybody. Two of those are, are behind a paywall. Extra Points uh, seeks to cover the off-the-field forces that shape all of college athletics. So it's, it's a lot about college football, but it, it's not exclusively about college football. Uh, you know, This week, I had a story where I, I talked to a few consultants that help conferences figure out how what their valuation would be for their media rights. I talked to some experts on name, image, and likeness valuation. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about Olympic sports sponsorship and about things happening at the Division two, three NIA level. Uh, it's my full-time job. It's 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 what I what I what I really focus on. I also do a podcast once a week with my friend Brian Fisher over at Athlon Sports called Going for Two, which uh, tries to interview guests and tell stories that would kind of fit into the extra points extended universe that maybe don't fit into a single newsletter. Um, you can subscribe at extrapointsmb.com. Uh, a paid subscription is eight bucks a month or seventy five bucks for a year. And if you have a university email account. Um, chances are your institution is eligible for a 50% off discount. I work with a lot of schools, especially in the South, that use my newsletter as like a textbook supplement for classes that are studying sports management or sports media or sports business. Um, and if that's something you're interested in, I'm, I'm happy to accommodate you. Uh, Jeff, again, this uh, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is, this is a must-follow in, in my world. This has been, yeah, this has been great. I love, especially being off the sideline. I love getting scoop, listening to things, seeing the crystal ball. And Layson, there's no one better than Matt. He, uh, our listeners are going to find that out. Uh, this has been just great, great fun. And Matt, thank you so much. Hey, listen, fellas, it's my pleasure. It's always fun to talk about this kind of thing with other people that are into it. And I, I hope it's something that your listeners enjoy as well. Great. And that will conclude the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X's and O's. And I'm Jeff Osterman with the basketball guru, Layson Perkins, and again, our wonderful guest, Matt Brown. Thank you so much and have a great evening.